to begin uh, this evening uh, for no good reason with a poem. It has uh, nothing to do with our um, topic except it has the, uh, the simple way of clearing my mind and I maybe offer you a bit of clearing too. The thing I like about this little poem is that it comes from a thousand years ago. Um, it's from China. Um, the poem is named, the poet is named Qin Kuan, and the poet is entitled Along the Grand Canal. So, it reads as so. Hoarfrost has congealed on the deck of my little boat. The water is clear and still. Cold stars beyond counting swim alongside. Thick reeds hide the shore. You'd think you'd left the earth. Suddenly there breaks in laughter and song. One of the beautiful things about uh, this poem is that you suddenly have an open picture of a brief moment of a real person a thousand years ago. Uh, it's kind of a lovely idea. Uh, this evening, uh, the um, uh, basis of my talk um, is uh, out of the um, chapters two and three of the book Silence by Thich Nhat Hanh, and this book is uh, the subject of uh, our thoughtfulness over the next while. The larger scheme of what Thich Nhat Hanh has to say offers the way to break the grip of habitual and repetitive thinking and to engage more deeply with what he calls store consciousness. The first step is coming to some kind of internal quiet. And we do that uh, with sitting meditation, uh, with paying uh, mindful attention to breathing, uh, paying attention to breathing, coming back to breathing in the course of daily life. Um, and that is fundamental. One of the things that Thich Nhat Hanh offers, though, most importantly, is the idea of walking. And I want to say, if you take nothing else away from this talk uh, at all, uh, just remember the idea of walking. Um, there is a phrase in Latin, solvitur ambulando. Um, I used it as part of the musical composition some years ago. It translates, it is solved by walking. That's a very interesting thought. I personally have done this for years. Um, I don't know how many, probably 40 years now of walking for the sake of clearing the mind and allowing deeper mind uh, to come forward. The Danish philosopher Kierkegaard uh, wrote the following. He said, above all, do not lose your desire to walk. Every day I walk myself into a state of well-being. I have walked myself into my best thoughts. If one just keeps walking, 
everything will be all right. So I'll give you a moment to absorb that thought, take it, hold it, and um, uh, I hope you'll begin to apply it to your life. Uh, most of us think, well, we don't have time to do that. I don't have time to take a walk every day. Um, I've come to the place in my life where I understand that my walking is part of my work. It is part of my uh, composing work, my composition, my thinking work. Everything starts from there. So when I start my walking, I have started my work. So I ask you to consider that thought very, very, very um, powerfully. So Thich Nhat Hanh um, offers the following. He says, walking is a wonderful way to clear the mind without trying to clear the mind. You don't say, now I'm going to practice meditation, or now I'm going to not think. You just walk. And while you're focusing on the walking, joy and awareness come naturally. In order to really enjoy the steps you make while walking, allow your mind to completely let go of any worry or plan. You don't need to put in a lot of time and effort to prepare yourself to stop thinking. With one in-breath taken in mindfulness, you have already stopped. You breathe in and you make a step. With that in-breath, you have two or three seconds to stop the mental machinery. In the beginning, you may need a little more time, maybe 10 or 20 seconds of mindful breathing before you can let your thinking go. I find it takes longer. Um, and uh, I, what I do, uh, I, a little thing that I developed uh, a number of years ago, just because I did, um, I would start my walking and I would allow whatever thought would rise to mind. It might be a very mundane thought, like I took a shower this morning and then I'd watch that thought disappear over the horizon and it would simply go away and I'd let it go. It would be followed by a second thought. Um, maybe what I had for breakfast, that. It might be followed by, oh, I have this meeting today, I have this to prepare today, I have this work today, and I would focus on that thought, and I would watch it release itself over the horizon. Sometimes when you get that far in that process, a deeper thought would arise that you don't even know was there. I remember a while back that suddenly I became aware that I was deeply concerned for my daughter Catherine, and it went like this. It went suddenly, oh. That thought hit me and struck me. I didn't even know it was there, but there it was. And I said, all right. I breathe with it. I take that, and I let it go. Heavy thoughts sometimes want to come back and stay with you, and you work simply to let it go. So it would often take me 10 or 15 minutes in the course of a walk in order to clear out a lot of space and to say, well, the space is now relatively clear. And what that does is to offer the possibility of a mental vacation. You are free. That is, you're not having to think about anything at that particular time. Um, it begins to show you that there is that place between your thinking and who you really are, who you, what your mind really is. And at that point, you can simply be in that space, breathe in that space, be in that space, relax in that space, and allow your mind simply to work on its own without you having to think consciously.
Thich Nhat Hanh goes on, he says, in that short amount of time you can experience the bliss, the joy, the happiness of stopping. During that time of stopping, your body is able to heal itself. Your mind also has the capacity to heal itself. There is nothing and no one to prevent you from continuing the joy you've produced with a second step, a second breath. Your steps and your breath are always there to help you heal yourself. As you're walking, you may see your mind being pushed and pulled around by an old, ingrained habit energy of anger or craving. In fact, that kind of energy might always be pushing you whatever you're doing. He goes on to say that this doesn't mean, this process doesn't mean that we shouldn't ever think or that we should suppress our thought. It simply means that when we're walking, we give ourselves the gift of taking a break from our thinking by keeping our attention on breathing and on steps. I'm taking small segments from what he has written here, and I'm going to amplify them a little bit. The next thing that he enters into is probably the more difficult aspect of, of um, this work. Um, he says, most of us have real anger and suffering living inside us. Perhaps in the past we were oppressed or mistreated, and all that pain is still right there, buried in our store consciousness. We haven't processed and transformed our relationship with what happened to us, and we sit there alone with all that anger, hatred, despair, and suffering. If we were abused when we were young, every time our thinking mind goes back over that event, it's like we're experiencing abuse all over again. We offer ourselves up to be abused over and over like that many times a day. That's ruminating on the toxic food of our consciousness. It helps if we live in a good environment where our friends can remind us, dear friend, please don't ruminate. We can ask, what are you ruminating on? Old suffering? We can help each other to break out of our habitual negative thinking and to get back in touch with the wonders that are right there inside of us. We can help each other not fall back into resurrecting the ghosts of suffering and despair that belong to the past. With this uh, saying, uh, he says essentially not to be watering the seeds of the suffering. Doing this, that is to back away from watering those seeds, that is to go into the open space of, of releasing yourself into a free internal space is the first step, and one which requires your trust, the idea that this is possible to do. And then it requires actual practice. I often use the analogy of learning a new instrument, um, uh, and I, I use this with musicians. I'll say to a musician, I'll ask them what their instrument is, they'll say it's the trombone. All right, and I say, um, <clears throat> all right, if someone takes your trombone and gives you a cello, the cello is now your instrument. Uh, and you um, have a choice. You can make a few scratching noises on the cello and say, eh, this sounds terrible, I'm not going to do this. Or you can practice 15 minutes a day and 
in a year's time you'll be a good beginner. Uh, this is exactly what happens uh, in the meditation practice. If you take this practice of walking and breathing, um, in a year's time you'll be a good beginner. The crux of the whole issue <coughs> is what you do with the open space. Relaxation all by itself is powerful and wonderful. In that relaxation, once you find that space in yourself, inner things begin to move on their own. Powerful good ideas come, but also the deep problems that you have will begin to rise to the surface. What was supposed to be relaxing and pleasant but now it isn't. Difficult things show up. Most of us simply want to get away from pain. But the only answer that I know about is to hold the pain. In a further uh, reading from the book, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh has the chapter heading Finding Answers Without Thinking. He starts by saying, this is not to say we'd never have the right to think. But then he goes on to talk about right thinking, what that might be. <coughs> right thinking requires mindfulness and concentration. Say there's a problem we need to solve. And I'll add to that that something comes up in your consciousness that is very troubling to you. We need to give our mind consciousness a rest and allow store consciousness to look for a solution. This is a wonderful idea. We have to take our intellectual and emotional hands off the wheel, he says, and entrust this question, this challenge, to our store consciousness just as when planting a seed, we have to entrust it to the earth and sky. Our thinking mind, our mind consciousness, is not the soil. It is only the hand that plants the seeds and cultivates the soil by practicing mindfulness of each thing we are doing as we go about our day. Our store consciousness is the fertile ground that will help the seed to germinate. After entrusting that seed to the soil of our store consciousness, we need to be patient. While we sleep, our store consciousness is working. While we walk, while we breathe, if we don't let our thinking interfere, the store consciousness is working. Then one day, the solution appears. Because we didn't take refuge in the thinking mind, we took refuge in our store consciousness. This is a hard thought, um, and people will really begin to ask, well, how do you do that? How do you actually do that? Um, and it will start, I'll simply describe what I do and what I experience. Um, to go for a long walk, to allow the mind to release itself, uh, to be in that place of relative peace and quiet and calm. And then, once that is established, to feel what wants to come up. 
Now, you may have something which is already on your mind, but something might rise to the surface. Even if it is something that you can't identify really closely, like a general small anxiety of some sort, you can see, well, my stomach feels nervous, or my mind is running. And you take that one thing, you say, my stomach feels nervous. Breathing in, I feel the nervousness in my stomach. Breathing out, you know, it's something you don't like. You don't like that feeling. I don't like it. Breathing out, I embrace that feeling. And I keep doing this. I walk with this, and I do this. I walk, and I breathe, and I say, breathing in, I feel it. Breathing out, I embrace it. Embracing it begins to move it. With simple patience in the process, the thing begins to move. It begins to show you another feeling, another thought. A different picture shows up in the mind, and it may show you one element of what it is that's causing you to be anxious. That element shows up. Breathing in, I recognize that element. Breathing out, I embrace that element. This is the work process that goes on over time. This is not a quick fix. Over time, this is the process which begins to move uh, deep things that cannot be moved in any other way. Thich Nhat Hanh says, sometimes we need to take a bit more time to look deeply into an idea or an emotion and discover its roots. And this is the challenge that I have just described to you. It came from somewhere, after all. It was formed perhaps in our childhood or even before we were born. This is a wonderful statement, even before we were born. This acknowledges both the genetic inheritance that you have, um, the, the cultural line that comes epigenetically, comes through your genes and through your, your cultural line. It also acknowledges karma. These are the seeds. These things which are out of sight, these are the seeds controlling our whole life from a position well below conscious awareness, a position before words, before concepts. They can't be touched directly by talking or thinking. They can be touched by holding and allowing the store consciousness to be the holding element, which then um, um, results in the movement. I'm going to take just a moment and give you a bell here. Further thought uh, from Thich Nhat Hanh, and one which leads um, into um, a different element that I want to uh, offer to you. He says, 
if you feel that your dreams aren't coming true, you might think you need to do more or to think and strategize more. In fact, what you need is less, less noise coming to you from both inside and outside so that you have the space for your heart's truest intention to germinate and flourish. I wanted to say a couple of things about the idea of truest intention. Um, there are a number of us, and well, everybody here is getting older. There's no question about it. Some of you are, are impossibly young. Uh, <coughs> and uh, then there's the middle group, and there's a bunch of us who are uh, distinctly not young any longer. Uh, <laughs> and as you grow, and most interestingly, and I know very few people who don't feel this, there is the despair of aging. The sense that possibilities are drying up. And that there really isn't any place to go and that it's all going down. But I want to say that things open up as they need to. And it isn't about your thinking or your planning. They open as they need to. And I realize at this age, I'm now 72, there is at this age things coming out of my store consciousness and out of my, not my store consciousness, my deep personal unconscious, which have not ever risen before, in which I am now experiencing uncomfortable things, which I am now in this process of holding and breathing with and watching them move. It's taken this long for this to show up. All right, there's a reason for, for being this old. <laughs> And I'm going to say that every age has its reason for being. Even those uh, things uh, which seem to you that this is the end point for someone and it's a tragic end. Say a person has Alzheimer's and has gone uh, deeply into this and for years doesn't have uh, a present mentality. I'll tell a tiny little story about my own mother uh, who passed at the age of 96. From the age of 80, on, she uh, began to lose her mental functioning. Uh, and um, by the time she was 90, uh, she didn't recognize people particularly well, but she was still alive and still going on. Um, and one of the last relatively coherent conversations that I had with her, she told me, and she would tell me something, and then she'd start to sing, uh, a chanting kind of humming. I don't know what she was singing. But then she would say, there is a small room in my mind where I go and talk with God. This is what she said. And I went, oh. We tend to think of collapsed mental functioning as being a tragedy. And in reality, it was a way for her actually to recognize her deep internal functioning. So, all right, there was a reason for her being at that deep age of 96, you know, to, to, um, to know that this was the case. So I, I respected that tremendously. So inside you now is the need for the space to realize dreams, regardless of your age. And there is the possibility of using larger dreams as the focus 
of your life. A larger dream, once you have connected to it, allows for personal issues to unfold in that space. You don't necessarily have to focus on, I have this problem, I have to deal with this problem. No. Yes, you do have to deal with that problem. But you can breathe and begin to experience your larger self telling you what wants to happen. And then you can begin to open to that and the other things begin to follow through. Now, I want to um, make a transition here uh, into a person uh, who had enormous dreams, and this is Martin Luther King. Um, His day is coming up, and so it's kind of a nice coincidence. Um, uh, I'll just give you the tiny background. Um, uh, Fifty years ago, I graduated from college, and uh, it's a long time ago. and this was at the Oberlin College in Ohio. I uh, was a um, conservatory of music student. Um, our speaker in 1965 at our commencement was Martin Luther King. Um, and he was a young man in 1965. He died in 1968 at the age of 39. He was 36 years old, so he was already Um, at that age, uh, doing his powerful work and at the end of his life. Very, very curious and interesting thing. So his dreams had to show up quickly and in big form for him. There's a wonderful quotation that I read in, uh, well, what I had to do uh, relative to Martin Luther King for this 50th anniversary event was to, I was asked to compose a piece of music to honor the memory of that 50, 50 years ago. It was a terrible burden to have to do this. Um, I did a huge amount of reading and a huge amount of remembering from that time. Um, and I developed a, um, a, a, a narration, uh, which I entitled Letter to Martin. And I'm going to read some parts of it to you uh, tonight as a way of talking about big dreams and how they affect a person. Now, his uh, actions that he took, uh, I'll take that back. Let me start in a different way. What came into focus for me as I began to understand something about Martin Luther King is that his power was in the personal, that his love was for each individual person, regardless of race, regardless of belief, regardless of actions. He was able to divorce action from the person and to love the person regardless. He was forced to circumstance by circumstances to let his, mar- his larger mind show up. I want to give you some of this now. This was done with music um, uh, in actual performance, um, uh, but we won't have the music tonight, and I'm not going to give you the entire thing, but I do want you to hear some of the elements of how the big dream showed up for Martin Luther King, how he was confronted by it, and how it pulled him along. Many of you know the personal story of King's life, that he wasn't a perfect man. He was... is, he was unfaithful to his wife on numerous occasions. He was a smoker. He drank too much. Uh, all those things uh, doesn't matter. Right? That he never figured that out. Fine, he never figured it out. Uh, but he found the power 
of the bigger thing that had to come through him. So I'll begin. Um, I wrote this as a personal letter because I began to realize that Martin Luther King said he loved each person, and that meant that he loved me. And so I had to take this idea that Martin Luther King loved me, and what did that mean to me? I said, Dear Martin, I am unsure how to talk to you. You are one of the greatest of the great men our country has produced. You are an American icon along with Washington and Lincoln. You are a statue, a stamp, a national holiday. Thousands of streets and schools have been named after you. Like Washington and Lincoln, you are venerated and already quite a lot forgotten. And nonviolence, what happened to it? I am writing you because I wanted to say what happened to it. I wanted to talk to you like a person, like a friend. I wanted to say that you planted seeds and what those seeds were and how they have grown and how they have grown in me. Here are some stories of those seeds. You told about the Montgomery bus boycott of having to give the most decisive speech of your young life. You had almost no time to prepare. You were possessed by fear. With nothing left but faith, you turned to God in prayer. With a mammoth crowd filling the church and the grounds outside, with television cameras ready to send your image and words across the world, with no notes or manuscript, you said words like these. And here was his act of faith. He simply had given himself over. He said, I don't know what else to do, God. And so he said to his store consciousness, help me. There he was. He said, we are gathered this evening for serious business before all else as American citizens, and we are determined to have the fullness of our citizenship. We are here because we love democracy and our unshaken belief that democracy transformed from words on paper to living action is the most powerful force on earth. You know, my friends, there comes a time when you get tired of being trampled by the iron feet of oppression. There comes a time when you get tired of being plunged into the abyss of humiliation where you experience the bleakness of despair. There comes a time when you get tired of being shoved out of the glittering sunlight of life's warm summer and left in the piercing chill of winter. And no, we are not wrong, not wrong in what we are trying to do. If we are wrong, then the Constitution of the United States is wrong. If we are wrong, then God Almighty is wrong. If we are wrong, then Jesus of Nazareth was just a utopian dreamer. We are not wrong. We are determined to fight until justice pours down like water and righteousness. Righteousness runs like a mighty river. You realize that this speech with scarcely any preparation had evoked more response than any speech you had ever given. You came to see for the first time what the old preachers meant when they said, Open your mouth and God will speak for you. This is store consciousness rising through a person prepared to let it happen. Following that speech, not long after you had settled into bed when the telephone rang, an angry voice said to you, Listen, and listen good, we've taken all we want from you. Before next week, you'll be sorry you ever came to Montgomery. And you tell the story of your fear in words like this. 
All right, here's the image now of man realizing his fear and giving his fear to the store consciousness. He said, I was shaken. All my fears hit me all at once. I had reached the edge. I got up and walked the floor, but I couldn't stop the fear. I was ready to quit. I tried to think of any way I could get out without seeming a coward. I thought about my beautiful newborn daughter and her gentle little smile, and my wife asleep in the next room. And I couldn't stand it anymore. I was weak. I bowed my head over the kitchen table and prayed out loud, Lord, I'm trying to do the right thing, but Lord, I am weak now. I have lost my courage. I am at the end of my ability to do this. I can't face this alone. And then I heard the quiet assurance of a voice inside me saying, Martin Luther, stand up. Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for truth. And lo, I will be with you even unto the end of the world. And then he says further, I tell you, I have seen the flash of lightning and heard the roar of thunder. I felt sin overwhelming my soul, but I heard inside me the voice of Jesus telling me to keep fighting. His sore consciousness spoke through his powerful teaching. He promised never to leave me. I felt the divine presence as never before. My fears fell away. My uncertainty vanished. I could face anything now. One more story of the, the power of the deep mind to rise to the surface. September 15, 1963, the church bombing in Birmingham, Alabama, in which four young girls died. And Martin Luther King spoke words like these. Never will I forget the bitterness and grief I felt on that awful September morning. Children are God's promise to us, and no one could tell what life could have been for those young girls. These young children, blameless, beautiful, were the victims of blind hatred, victims of one of the most heinous crimes ever committed against the spirit of life, yet they did not die in vain. They are heroines and martyrs of a holy crusade for freedom, justice, and dignity. So they have something to say to each person, whether black or white, that we must choose courage or a caution. They say that we must see and think past the individuals who murdered them, to the system and way of life that produced these murderers. Their deaths say to us that we must work with all our hearts and without ceasing to bring the American dream into reality. No, their deaths were not in vain. God can still render good out of evil. It's such a rich life and so many beautiful, beautiful things here. I'm going to move to the uh, end of this. Uh, we had in 1968 uh, a, a terrible year in our society. Uh, the historian David McCullough said that of all the history that he knows, that probably was the most dangerous moment in the history, modern history, in which the country could have fallen apart. Um, and it was the uh, assassination of Robert Kennedy, the assassination of Martin Luther King, 
um, and the Chicago Convention, political convention, with the, the police riots and, and uh, all that took place there. During that year, in February of 1968, just two months before your own passing, you spoke out thoughts like these in a Sunday sermon. And this is what he finally had to say about and for himself. He said, Once in a while I think about my own death and my own funeral. And this is two months before he was shot to death. Not in a morbid way, but I ask, what would I want someone to say? If any of you are here when it is my time to meet my end, don't make it a long funeral. And if someone gives the eulogy, ask them not to make it too long. And every once in a while, I wonder what I might ask them to say. Ask them not to mention the Nobel Peace Prize. That's not important. Ask them not to mention all the other awards or where I went to school. Those things are not important. On that day, I'd like someone to mention that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to give his life in the service of others. On that day, I'd like someone to say, I tried to love somebody. Say that day that I tried to feed the hungry and clothe the naked. I want someone to say that Martin Luther King Jr. was a drum major, a drum major for justice, a drum major for peace. Say that I tried to be a drum major for righteousness, and all those other shallow things won't matter. I won't have anything to leave behind. No money. None of the fine things of life. But all I want to leave behind is a committed life. And that's all I want someone to say. for help to bring in the tea and then we can proceed with our